Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, Kevin is away, uh, continuing his tour of popularity. Uh, he's kind of famous. If you don't know, he's really a big deal. And uh, he is the anchor of the James Brown Trio, and they are singing this morning. And so what does he do? Uh, he calls in his dead ringer stunt double, me. Uh, if you close your eyes, if you don't close your eyes, I look nothing and sound nothing like Kevin, but we can all aspire to great heights. So uh, this morning we're going to be in Luke's Gospel chapter 9, and uh, I know you guys are going through Romans on Sunday mornings this fall, uh, but Kevin said he had actually paused in his schedule for this morning because he knew he would be away, and so this morning we're going to be in Luke's Gospel chapter 9. Uh, I would imagine most of us, if not all of us, have found ourselves in a scenario where you're sharing the gospel with somebody or maybe you're interacting with somebody, uh, and it's hard to know if that person really is a Christian or not. Uh, they say some things that, you know, equal with what Jesus teaches, but then there's other things that are kind of confusing. And, you know, I kind of feel like here in the United States, and specifically in the South, uh, we're very prone to complicating and confusing the gospel in such a way that it makes it really hard to tell. Now, if you've never encountered that, uh, one of the ways you can know is if you ever travel abroad to places where there's opposition or apathy to the gospel, those places are really hard. They're really hard to talk to people about Jesus. They're really hard to share your testimony. But one of the, one of the things that actually is really nice about those places is you never leave a conversation curious where somebody stands in, in regards to Jesus Christ. And that, for me, is actually a blessing. And, and so we look at that and we say, oh, well, that's kind of a new thing here in the United States. And the truth of the matter is, it's really not. Jesus found himself in a similar situation. When you read through the Gospels, okay, one of the things that you see is that Jesus was extremely popular. When you read through the Gospels, Jesus would go into a town and masses of people would crowd around him, right? He was extremely, extremely possible, and rightly so. Look, Jesus was killing the game in his day when it came to exercising demons, when it came to healing people, when it came to raising people from the dead, when it came to teaching from authority that people had never heard before. Like, Jesus was knocking it out of the park, and all these people were just amazed, okay? And they wanted to gather around him, and Jesus himself found himself in a place where People really wanted to be around him, but they really didn't desire to follow him, much like what we have in our area today. It actually records for us, John, one of his apostles that was with him, actually records for us on one occasion in John 6, 66, it says that, that from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him, right? Jesus basically takes this crowd and tells them what it means to be his follower, and John tells us that a lot of people were like, Bro, I just don't know if I'm going to be about that. And they, they turned and they, they, they walked away. And so in this, in this moment, in this passage, what we have today, though, is Jesus talking to his apostles. Look in chapter 9, verse 18. It says, once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. I would imagine this morning with this crowd and with this size, right, being the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I would imagine most of you, if not all of you, are pretty committed to a relationship with Jesus, right? Um, but maybe, maybe not all of you. And so you say, well, Greg, I'm not sure how this applies to me. Well, in the context of the passage we're going to look, Jesus was actually sharing this truth with his inner circle. Now, we know at least 11 of the 12 were about that life because they ended up giving their life for Christ 
uh, in the end, okay? And so he has his inner circle and his core group that this passage is actually being shared to. It's not being shared to a multitude. It's not being shared to a group of people that Jesus wasn't sure if they were following him or not. And so it really applies to us this morning. And so what I want us to consider then um, this morning, looking at this passage, is what are the facts about following? What are some of the facts about following Jesus? What are the truths that Jesus laid out for his inner circle, recorded by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through Luke, that we might know today? And we're just going to kind of walk through this passage. We're going to look at some different things, and then, Lord willing, I'll give you guys some time around your tables to discuss some things, okay? Uh, The first thing that we see in here is that in the first passage, it says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple. One of the facts about following Jesus is that it's available to everyone who desires to do so. Everyone who desires to follow Jesus has that opportunity. Being drawn by the Holy Spirit, by God the Father, to God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives us that opportunity to follow. You might have heard through the years, Brother Al would always use this phrase. It took me a little while to pick up on it, but he always used a phrase like, like God is no respecter of persons, which in the, you know, if you don't necessarily know what that means, it sounds kind of weird at first, but what he's saying is that the opportunity to follow Jesus uh, does not hinge on where you're born or what your ethnicity is or what your family's background is or what your financial statements look like or what you're able to do or not able to do, Right? Those aren't parameters on following Jesus. He says, whoever wants to be my disciples. There are so many, so many amazing things about Jesus that it's really hard to count them all. Those of us who love Jesus and follow Jesus, if we were to say, hey, grab a piece of paper, start writing down things about Jesus, I would imagine your list would start to grow and get pretty long because he's so amazing. He's so wonderful and incredible. But one of the things that's always blown me away about Jesus is the fact that when you read through the Gospels, there's not a single person who comes to Jesus that he tells them to leave. Then you say, well, Greg, why is, that, why is that so amazing? Even his enemies, when they came to trap him and they were opposed to him, he never told them to leave. Everyone who came to Jesus, he gave them the opportunity to do that. That's amazing. Now, there were people who turned away of their own volition, right? They were like, we just read that in John chapter 6, right? They, they didn't want to follow him. But that's amazing. And you say, well, why does that matter? Well, that matters because maybe somebody in this room, but definitely people that you will encounter, they, they might have some hang-ups on coming to Jesus. And some of those are self-induced. They feel like they've done certain things or they haven't done certain things, and it disqualifies them from coming to Jesus. I remember years ago, we'd go to London on mission trips, and some of you guys may have met uh, a gentleman named Martin Durham, who does K-180, uh, who does like street evangelism. And we were, we were on the red box there at Ealing Broadway, uh, and we were sharing our, our, the gospel through illustrative means, and we we're sharing our testimony. And I remember one time I, I was there, and there was a gentleman over to the side who was uh, kind of mean-mugging me a little bit while I was sharing my testimony, and I thought, man, this is going to be... <laughs> Either really fun or really awkward when I get down on the box, you know. Uh, the, only, the only way I could take this guy was to take him uh, to, to dinner because he was a lot physically bigger than I was, and I thought this ought to be interesting. And so, uh, so he, I get off the box, and he comes over to me, and it and ended up being his name was Michelle. And Michelle said, okay, well, I just heard what you said, but I'm having a hard time believing that. 
And I said, cool. I said, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Michel was, was from France. Uh, he lived in London. He had served in a French military unit. And, and he, said, he said, I've done so many things in my military career that there's no way <clears throat> Jesus would accept me. And I said, well, Michelle, I said, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel that way, bro. And he said, uh, he said, I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. And I said, well, I can't tell you why you're wrong, but I can tell you the Bible can. And he said, okay. I said, do you have a Bible? He says, uh, no, I don't. So I reached over and I got a Bible and I handed it to him. And I, and I flagged from Matthew 1 to the end of John. And I said, Michelle, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to take this Bible home and I want you to read all four books that I just flagged for you. And he says, what am I looking for? I said, I want you to look for any time where somebody came to Jesus, whether it was a prostitute, whether it was a religious Pharisee, whoever it was, came to Jesus and Jesus said, you're not worthy, I need you to leave. And he said, where will I find that? And I said, nowhere. And he said, are you serious? I said, yeah, I'm serious. And I said, after reading all four books of those Bibles, once you discover that that fact remains, that Jesus will take you as you are, I want you to make a commitment to me that you'll trust Christ and you'll begin to follow him. And he just started crying. And I was like, what a powerful truth. That's a powerful truth, no matter what kind of life that you live. See, one of the things I think that we've been deceived is to think that if we haven't been to prison or if we haven't cheated or if we haven't murdered somebody, we don't have a testimony. But the truth of the matter is every single one of us was born with a sin nature that separated us from God, and every single one of us has a broken soul that we bring to Jesus to be saved and redeemed and restored and renewed. Every one of us. And what an amazing testimony that every one of us in this room who has given their life to Christ and, 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 and surrendered to him to follow him has this testimony. That when you came to Jesus, he didn't say, sorry, bro, I, I, I can't do that. No, that's not what he says at all. That's amazing. Whoever wants to be my disciple must. Must. Jesus wants to understand that when we receive him as our Savior and we commit to following him, there are some expectations. <clears throat> there are some actions that come with that. Now, some people go, oh, I see. So there's strings attached. No, it doesn't mean that there's strings attached. It's kind of like this. <clears throat> so many areas of our lives, when we commit to enter into a relationship or we commit to enter into a partnership, there's things that come with that, okay? I'll give you a clear example. On June 19th, 1999, I stood before my family and before others, and I, just, I committed to, to be a husband to, to Ginger Wheat, okay? Now, when I entered into that relationship, there were some things that come with that, okay? For example, one of the things I must do, the Bible says, is to leave my father and my mother, okay, which my dad celebrated and he was happy. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but no, but the thing is, is that now I'm inheriting being the spiritual leader for my family. That's what comes with that commitment into that relationship, okay? All right, so that's a, that's a must. Another thing that's a must is, is in my vows, I said, and forsaking all others, I cling only unto Ginger. What are, what's another must? When I enter into that relationship, I must now enter into every relationship with every female that I come into completely different than I do with my wife. I must forsake all others. I can never treat another female the same way I treat my wife. It's her and it's her alone, okay? When I made that commitment, that's what came with it, okay? And guess what? If you don't hold to that, it doesn't work out well, in case you didn't know that, okay? And that's how God designed it. And you say, 
Well, oh, but those are strings attached. Those aren't strings attached. Those are things I know entering into those relationships. That's what I was getting into, okay? Hey, how about, this happens all the time, it, it worked. Some of you in here have to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement with your work. What does that mean? That means you won't talk about the details of what you do with your job. And you go, well, now that job has strings attached. No, you know going into it, that's what comes with that job. And you just operate that way, okay? Or hey, how about being an, an Auburn fan? When I came as a student in 1993, no, it wasn't API. It had just transitioned out of that. But when I came as a student in 1993 to Auburn and I became a part of the Auburn family, what comes with that? Two things. I must I never root for our arch rival, okay? I'm sorry. That's what comes with the package deal. When you commit and you sign on the dotted line to be part of a family, right, you never root for your arch rival. The second thing is you have to say War Eagle, okay? Can I, can I take a step onto my soapbox for a second? I can't stand when people wear something Auburn, right? And I'm like, War Eagle, and they go, yeah, yeah, right. And I'm like, bro, take it off right now. I don't care if you're shirtless in public. Take it off, turn it inside out. I don't care. You put on the AU, you put on the orange and blue, you better know how to answer back, which the answer is, thank you very much. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's what I commit to in that relationship. I commit to saying War Eagle wherever, whenever it's said to me, right? Yes, there you go. All right, so, <laughs> all right, off my soapbox. But the thing is, is that, is that you, you, you understand that when it, when it comes to surrendering to Jesus, when it comes to being a c- commitment to follow him, Jesus says, look, there's some things that come with that. But here's the beauty of Jesus, too. He doesn't want us to be uneducated. He wants us to know what that means. He wants us to know what that looks like. He doesn't want us to enter into it blindly. He doesn't want us to enter into it haphazardly. He wants us to know what we're getting into. Hey, hold your spot here and go over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. A little bit further in the gospel, Jesus actually gives these great analogies of what it's like. What it's like to just commit to being his follower, but to, to, to no avail. Just you don't, you don't consider what that means. And he gives these great analogies about not counting the cost. Luke's gospel, chapter 14, look in verse 28. Verse 28, he says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I had a chance to go to some parts of of southwestern Russia years ago, and I saw this in person, and it reminded me of this illustration that Jesus gave. You walk, you you drive through there, and, and you just see building after building and home after home that's just been sitting dormant forever, that just has walls, maybe it has a roof, and like, that's it. And it was very common over there that people would just start building with the money they had. And when they ran out of money, they just would let it sit until they could get some more. And it it looked, to me, it looked weird. It just did. It looked totally unfinished. And Jesus is saying, like, that's not wise to do it that way. He gives this other example of a king. He said, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything, you, you, have, you have cannot be my disciples. What he's saying here is like, don't be foolish. And, and don't be uneducated about it, what it means to be my follower because you would be like these people that just jump into it and they find themselves not being able 
to hold true to that commitment. The honesty of Jesus is really hard at times. It really is. But actually, it's kind of refreshing because at least we all should know what it is that we're getting into, right? Jesus doesn't want any of his followers to be hoodwinked or snookered or anything like that. So what are these musts then, right? Whoever wants to be my disciple must. He lays out a few of them for me. The first thing he says is we must deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. <laughs> oh, man. I, all right. If you were to say, Greg, you, you're going to have a group of people that are going to commit to your club or your team or whatever. So once you lay down like what your expectations are, I'm not sure I would start with this. Okay, Jesus starts, he doesn't start with a jab. He starts with a knockout punch, okay? He starts with like the hardest thing on the list. He's like, okay, well, if you want to follow me, sweet. Let's start with this. Start denying yourself. Really? That's where you're going to, that's how you're going to start? Okay, well, here we go. No soft punches, no, no layups. Just let's, just let's just throw it down. Do you guys realize how hard this is? Do you realize how hard it is to deny yourself? Now, I know some of you in here may still be a little young. You may still be a little naive, really cute, but let me go ahead and set it straight for you, okay? If you were unsure how hard it is to deny yourself, I'm going to give you one illustration, okay? You ready? Everybody ready? Group photos. Group photos. Every one of us has been involved in a group photo. It could be with your family. It could be with your friends. It could be a selfie at a game. Whatever it is, that picture's taken. You get your eyes on that picture. Who is the first person you look at in that picture? yourself okay yourself now all of a sudden you deem the quality of that picture based on what yourself yes i could be in a picture with a hundred people okay i zoom in and i look gnarly i'm like <laughs> right 99 people look like glamour shots at olin mills they are models i'm cross-eyed snaggletooth booger hanging out of my nose my declaration on that perfect picture is what? Oh, my gosh, that's a terrible picture. No, it's not. It's just terrible to me. Everybody else looks great. Now, put the shoe on the other foot. You're in a group shot, and all your friends are like, oh, my gosh. Did you see all three of those chins get captured in that frame? But you're shining. You're glowing. Hallelujah, chorus is playing. Heaven's opening up with a ray of sunshine on you. And you go, oh, man, that, is a, that is an awesome picture. No, it's not. It's just awesome of you, okay? If you want to know how do I know that we are self-absorbed, group photo, number one. Number two, anybody else in here really have to pray and really have to ask for King Jesus to come when they encounter bad drivers? Anybody besides me? If you're not raising your hand, you are a bad driver. You are the cause. You are the cause of my sanctification. I, I mean, listen, when I'm sitting in a parking lot, and I better, I'll probably get an amen, at least by Jonathan on this one. When I'm sitting in a parking lot, and I'm waiting patiently for somebody to back out of a parking spot, and I have my freaking blinker on, and that person pulls out, and the person comes in and whips right in front of me in the parking spot, Lord Jesus. I'm so glad I have good insurance. I'll just take their back bumper off and just keep going, right? Even leave my business card. I mean, listen, if you want to talk about how self-absorbed we are, I, we, we kid, but it's so true, right? We are so selfish by nature. And, and sometimes we realize it. Part of the sanctification process of following Jesus, the Holy Spirit, once you start living long enough, he'll start pointing these things out to you. And, and listen, even later in life, I never knew how selfish I was till I got married. I really thought I had a little bit of a handle on the game, and then I got married, and I was like, oh, man, okay, there's a lot more 
of that wood that's got to be whittled away. And then I knew I had it under control, and then I had kids, and then I realized all the areas that still needed to be whittled away of my, of my selfishness, and, and uh, man, it is, it is hard. But listen, when you read through the Gospels and you read through Jesus' commands, every one of those suckers targets right at our selfishness and our, our sinful nature. And that's why it's got to come first. Because everything else that flows out of following Jesus comes from our continued journey and our continued process to deny ourselves, to make room for the Holy Spirit, to continue to do his work in our hearts and our lives. For example, when Jesus says, hey, I want you to forgive and I want you to love people. That's not hard. There's so many people in our lives that we love. And, and, and when they make bad decisions and, and they hurt us, we're quick to forgive right? You say, I can do that. And Jesus says, well, I, I think it, I, I want you to do that for your enemies as well. He says, for anybody can forgive somebody and love somebody that they love, but my followers forgive and love people that don't love them back. Boy, that's hard. That's real hard. That's much harder. Or he says, hey, I want you to pray for people. Well, that's easy, right? The people around your table group, the people in your friend group, people here at church, like, you know, they're going through a hard time. Right, And you give them a big embrace, and you're like, hey, man, I'm going I'm to pray for you. That's easy. And Jesus says, well, I also want you to pray for those who persecute you. Well, what about people that insult you, you know, and metaphorically slap you in the face because of your beliefs? Jesus wants you to pray for them as well. That's, that's a lot harder. That's a lot harder to pray for somebody that you're holding a grudge against. Or Jesus says, hey, I want you to consider others better than yourself. Deal. My, my parents, my siblings, my kids, my wife, like all the people I love, sometimes Kevin, right? Like, like all these people that I have a close relationship with, I have no problems considering them better than me. But Jesus says, well, but not just them. Even those who annoy the mess out of you, I'd like you to consider them better than yourself too. You see what I'm saying? Following Jesus, that you, you got to start with denying yourself because everything about what he calls us to do it's totally against our, our, our nature, our sin nature. And, and being a follower of Jesus means we enter into this journey of denying ourselves because what that does is that begins to make room for the Holy Spirit to do his work, to continue to transform and conform our hearts, our minds, our souls, everything about us to the Christ-likeness that he desires. So whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. The second thing he says, and take up their cross daily. Take up their cross daily. So many people, when I've heard this passage explained and taught and preached, so many people equate this to, to dying to self, dying to ourselves. And that's not wrong. That's not wrong. That is, that is an appropriate understanding of what this is. I mean, if you read through Scripture and you read through the Gospels, in so many places, right, it's, it's equated to us as followers of Jesus Christ to, to uh, die to ourself, right, and, and, and to live as Christ. But in, in essence... Jesus already said to, to die to self when he said to deny yourself. So did he repeat himself? Did he double down? He did that often. Um, there's also another perspective, though, uh, of an understanding of this passage that I want you to consider. That they Ask yourself this question. What was the cross for Jesus? When Jesus taught this to his disciples... He hadn't died on the cross yet. He hadn't been crucified. When Jesus taught this to his disciples, he had never communicated to them that the cross was the means of death 
that he was, he was going to take. They, he had said that he was going to die, but you got to understand, when he used these words, they didn't really know what that means like you and I do today. So what is he saying here? You ask the question, well, what is the cross for Jesus? And the answer is the cross was God's will for Jesus' life. That was God's designed will and purpose for Jesus' life, to die the death for you and for me, to pay the price for our sins. So in essence, what this could also translate to is whoever wants to be my disciple, right, must deny themselves and take up God's will for their lives daily. And that's a cool way to think about what that means for you and for me as followers of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, what all does that mean for us? Okay, I don't want to be too technical or too in-depth or, or too academic for you, but there's two types of wills that God has that we see in Scripture that are pretty clear. One of them is what I call general wills that he has for all of his children. Everyone who wants to be a follower of Christ, God has these general wills. So it doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Anybody who's a child of God, God has these universal desires for everybody. For example... God has a desire and a will for every one of his children to worship him. To worship him, right? That doesn't matter where you are geographically. That doesn't matter what stage of life you're in, right? Children worship just as much as senior adults. North Americans worship just as much as people who live in Africa, people who live in Asia, people who live in Australia, right? That's God's desire for all of his people everywhere. Scripture intake. God has a desire for everyone of his followers to intake Scripture and to understand Scripture and to know Scripture and let it just, just ooze and marinate in your, in your soul. Witnessing, discipleship, being involved in a church community, tithing, right? All of these things are things that God wills universally for every one of his followers. Those are things that are part of our lives. How often? What does that word say? Daily, you got to love an open book test. It's right there for you, right? Daily implementing, daily following, daily submitting to these wills that he has for us as his children. But not only does God have these general wills, he also has specific wills for individuals, specific individuals, specific times in their lives. For example, God's will for Moses was to go into Egypt and lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land. That's not a general will for God, right? He doesn't wish that for every one of his followers. Every one of us are not called to go to Egypt, stand in front of Pharaoh and be, hold a staff and say, God said, let his people go. If you try that today, they'd be like, bro, I don't know what water you drank this morning, but you might want to put that bottle down, okay? All right, they'd just be weird. Or Paul, right? God's specific will for Paul as laid out in the book of Acts was that Paul would suffer for his namesake and that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. That's not God's will for every one of us in this room today. Um, also to note that sometimes God's general, or, or God's general wills, they don't change, right? Throughout the rest of your life, all those things like worship, discipleship, tithing, church community, all of those, those never change, but his, his specific will can. Think about Abraham with Isaac. God's specific will for Abraham was to take his son Isaac up to the mountain and to sacrifice him. Once they got up to the, up to the mountaintop, once Isaac was put on the altar, what happened? God came to Abraham and said, hey, I now have a different course of action for you. I now need you to save Isaac. Now, now what, if, what if Abraham was like, sorry, God, I got to stick with the first one, and he, and he murders Isaac. You're like, what? God can change his course and direction for your life, and you can still be in the will of God. You know, I think about Kevin, right? Kevin has been a lead pastor 
for several years at different churches. And now he's an associate pastor here at Lakeview working with college ministry. Does that mean that Kevin was out of God's will when he was a lead pastor and now he's in God's will because he's doing something different or vice versa? Is he currently out of God's will because he's no longer a lead pastor? No, not at all. Right? God's plan and his, his course for Kevin of how he wanted to use him changed through his lifetime. And what did Kevin do? Kevin submitted to where God was calling him. That's what that looks like, guys. So we deny ourselves so the Holy Spirit can do his work, and then we take up God's will for our lives, both his universal will and his specific will. Each one of you in here, each one of you in here has been created by God for a purpose. And each one of you in here has been gifted in such a way God wants to use you for his kingdom's purpose here on this earth. But here's the cool thing. We're not all created with the same gifts and talents. We're not all created for the, for the same avenue, right? Some people are teachers. Some people are businessmen. You look through Scripture, it says God ordained different people for different things. Why? Because collectively, we work together as a body. And so you're in a stage of life where sometimes that's pretty clear. Right, I knew ever since I was a kid I wanted to do art in some shape, form, or fashion. And I came to Auburn. I was one of those weirdos that never changed my major. Started in graphic design, graduated in graphic design. Took me a little bit longer, but I, finished, I finally reached the goal. Pulled a hamstring my freshman year uh, academically, and it just is what it was, okay? And so, uh, and so I, I got done. I got a job in graphic design. I've been doing that in some shape, form, or fashion ever since I graduated. And I've been, been able to merge that into different ministries and different people's lives to use it for kingdom purpose, right? And, and so you guys are in that stage, though. Some of you are like, I know exactly the t- talents and the gifts God's given me, and I know exactly how I want to use them. And some of you are like, bro, I have no idea. I have no idea, and that's okay. That's okay. Because God wants you to figure out what those are. He wants you to find those and discover those, and he'll lead you along the path. And you may use them in different ways at different stages of your life. Just make sure you're using them. So, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross daily, and follow me. And follow me. We're daily denying ourselves, we're daily following God's will for our lives, and we're daily following Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? It says daily looking at the life of Jesus Christ and developing those Christ-like elements in our hearts, minds, and souls. You guys are going through Romans. You haven't reached chapter 8 yet, but at some point in time in the near future, you'll come across Romans 8, 29, where it says, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. You say, well, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Kevin will explain it in more detail, and a better job, by the way. But the introductory level, here's what that means. God's predetermined plan for every one of his followers was to be set on a journey to conform you each day more and more to the image of Jesus Christ until the day that we see him in glory face to face. The big fat $3 word that we use for that is called sanctification. God's predetermined plan for every single person in this room was the day that we decided to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord and commit to being his followers. You and I stepped onto a journey. We stepped onto a process that God is using to mold us and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Now he dives into two more truths that we see. Look in verse 24 and 25. He says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very soul? 
Well, now Jesus just goes into ridiculous math. And those of you who have very logical, straightforward, common sense minds, your mind probably melts and falls out your ear a little bit when you read Scripture. You probably need a mind diaper when you're diving into your quiet time with the Lord, right? Because sometimes he's so backwards and you're like, I don't, I don't get it. Us artsy-fartsy guys were like, oh, that's awesome, right? Because nothing makes sense to us except the things that don't make sense. But here's, why, here's, here's Jesus' math equation. Saving equals losing. Losing equals saving. And you're like, yeah, bro, that, I, I, you lost me. <laughs> you lost me at hello. It, here's what he says. He says, look, saving means you're losing because you never can do enough. In this context, we're talking about saving your life. He says, when you're trying to do everything in your own power, your own strength, you're trying to build your own resume to present to God uh, at the day that you die. He said, you end up losing because you did not get enough. He even says, what good is it for you to get the greatest portfolio in the history of time by acquiring every single thing in the world? You still lose because even that is not enough. Warren Wiersbe writes in his commentary this. It's great. He says, this kind of life seems foolish to the world, but to the Christian, it's wisdom. To save your life is to lose it. And how can you ever get it back again? This is the best part. But to give your life to Christ is to save it and to live it in fullness. For if a person owned the whole world, he would still be too poor to buy back a lost life. Losing our life means we surrender to the Lord Jesus and we embrace all that he has already done, not to give our portfolio to God at the end of time, but that Jesus hands his portfolio over in our place and it's counted to us as righteousness is what the Bible says. Now, how do we know that's enough? How do we know that's enough? That's a lot of trust in something that we can't see. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2 about Jesus. He said, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how we know it's enough. Now, the last thing he says about being a follower of Jesus, we deny ourselves, we take up God's will for our lives daily, we follow Jesus, we, we surrender to receive his saving grace. And the last thing he says here in verse 26, he says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The final fact about following Jesus is our unwillingness to be ashamed of that relationship, of that commitment. If you and I begin to live out the life that God has called us to live, and we begin to live a life that models what Jesus lived, which is what God desires for us, we will begin to do things in our lives, and we will make decisions, and things will begin to emulate from our lives that people will not really be excited about. I think the term that you could identify with, would it will become countercultural. And as you guys continue to get older and as you guys continue to age, apart from a radical revival in the United States of America, it actually will continue to be even harder and even harder to be a follower of Christ 
and be in the world in which you desire to live in. It won't be acceptable. And Jesus said, when that moment comes, when that moment comes, I desire for my followers to not be ashamed of the fact that they're in a relationship with me. And that will be a real temptation for every one of us. If you've never faced it already, you will. You will. The pressure will get put on you, and it'll be easier to just take a step back. But I look at it kind of like this. You know, I told you on June 19th, 1999, I made a commitment to Ginger Wheat to be her husband. But, but imagine that I never wore a wedding ring because I didn't want people to know that I was married. Or imagine that we ride together somewhere in public, but as soon as I see people, I let go of her hand and I start drifting away from her so that I'm not next to her. I don't want people to know. Now, what kind of marriage relationship is that? Well, it's a really terrible one, okay, in case you didn't know the answer. Really terrible one. I'd be a terrible husband because I would be ashamed of the fact that I entered into that relationship. You'd say, no, bro, you made that commitment, right? You know? Let everybody know. And trust me, I do. She's amazing, right? I'm so glad she had a lapse of judgment. I took advantage of the opportunity while the window was small. <laughs> and so, yes, I wear a wedding ring. Yes, I have pictures of my wife. I love for her to be my arm candy when I'm out in public, right? And so the thing is, especially when I got an all-white beard, you know, anyway, she looks like my trophy wife. But, uh, but that's a whole other statement. So the thing is, is that, that that's a relationship I enter to, and I'm excited about it, right? And if somebody's like, you know, bro, man, your wife's ugly. Well, I'm sorry. I'll ask Jesus for forgiveness because I will put my hands on you in a violent way if you're another man and you say that about my wife, okay? And, and the thing is, is that I'm not ashamed of that relationship at all. And Jesus is like, that's what this is, right? That's what this is. When that moment comes, and trust me, that moment will come. He says, another thing I want for my followers is for you to be excited and to be elated, even if you're the only person, even if people are like, dude, you're foolish, you're narrow-minded, take whatever adjective that the world wants to put on you to label you and wear that label proud and say, man, I love you, and Jesus loves you, but at the end of the day, his approval is the one that I seek because he's the one who died the death I should have died because he lived the life I cannot live to save me. And I can never be ashamed of that. That's why Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1. You guys have covered that already, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. What an incredible power. Man, that's a lot to digest. <laughs> that's a lot that I just dumped into your mind and asked you to digest and ingest and figure all this out. So here's the things just in synopsis to know. Number one, that these are the facts for you and for me about following Jesus. Here's another thing that's the most important one of all. We will not do all of these properly all at the same time. Because you and I continue to have a sin nature, we will always have gaps in our journey. We'll always have gaps in our process of being conformed to the image of Christ where we mess up. We'll all have moments where we fail to deny ourselves. We will all have moments where we fail to capitalize on God's will for our life. We will all have moments where we, we fall short following Jesus. We will all have moments, whether you want to admit it or not, we will all have moments where we essentially deny Jesus like Simon Peter did. We all have those moments. Why? Because we are not fully sanctified in the glorious state of Jesus Christ yet. But it's a process. It's a journey. 
we continue on that path. And we will not complete the work here on earth. But it is worth it. Personal testimony. I had a radical encounter with Jesus Christ over 25 years ago. And I, when I was preparing for this, I looked back and I thought about all the things that I gave up that, was, that I had in my life at that moment in order to be a Christ follower. And I got a piece of paper and a pen, and I wanted to write down, what are the things that I miss? What, what are the things that I gave up and I miss? Zero. Zero. There wasn't a single thing that came to mind that I honestly miss laying at the feet of Jesus to surrender to him. And I believe it's probably going to be the same for you too because it's worth it. Well, I'm going to pray. You guys can have some time around your table groups. And I've given a list of questions. You don't have to follow them, but just in case you're curious where to go, some of the things that you can consider and discuss are things like, what is something about this passage that stands out to you? What does it mean for you to deny yourself, and why is that so difficult? What, what do you think God's will is for your life? What are some things you're doing to discern that will for your life? What does it look like for you to follow Jesus? What are some things you need to continue doing to follow Jesus? And what are some things that you need to start doing to follow Jesus? Thank you guys for continuing to be awesome. Let me pray, and you guys can have a moment of discussion around your table groups to close out this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you are who you are, that you've done what you've done, and that you mind-blowingly invite us to come and receive these gifts that we can't understand on the surface. It's hard to process grace. But Lord, we're so thankful for it. Thank you that through the person and the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit that you drew us unto yourself so that we might receive your salvation and be saved. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who maybe has been on the fence for whatever reason coming to you. I pray that this morning your own words would ring true in their soul and they would come and receive the grace that you came and died for on their behalf. Lord Jesus, thank you for our time together in worship. I pray that being a follower of you would overflow. Your word says that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. May the overflow of our heart, loving you and recognizing what it means to be your follower, catapult us into worship, into hearing your word this morning, and into recognizing your death, burial, and resurrection through the Lord's Supper until you return. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the opportunity to follow you. It's in your name we gather. It's in your name that we read your word. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.